2: Hello and welcome. It's another podcast from Books of the Year. That's what we are. He's Matt Williams. I am, and you are Simon Mayo. Welcome. Standing by for Marcus Zuzak and Anthony Horowitz. Uh, who's this writing?
1: Rachel says, I'll admit uh, I'm hesitant to read the book. This, of course, is Heather Morris's book, uh, The Tattooist of Auschwitz. It doesn't seem like it would be ideal bedtime reading. However, if people like Lully and Geeta can survive horrific experiences such as these, then have the immense courage to share the story,
2: then I feel I should read it. Uh, Jackie Connor, thanks for getting in touch. Not sure if you've been in Jenner's on Prince's Street. It was House of Fraser. My friend's mum worked there in the 60s. She was friends with a lady who refused to take her cardigan off when it was hot. She had been in one of the camps and chose to hide the tattoo on her arm. Poor soul. Some of the staff were up their backsides thinking they were posh, probably why she kept herself to herself. Uh, On a funny note, mum bought me a lovely midnight blue long-sleeve velvet dress with white pom-poms dangling on the front. I love that dress, long after my first school Christmas party in December 63, which is what it had been bought for. When Mum had gone to buy me a dress, she asked a sales assistant in Jenner's where the girls' clothes were. This haughty madam advised her that the inexpensive girls' dresses are over there. (laughs) Nice voice, well done. Which is how they speak on Prince's Street. Yeah. I can still hear her screeching. She's only a... Bleep! Sales assistant. Who does she think she's talking to? Different times, they never dare speak to you like that now. It loses it in writing, but you had to be there. I love Matt's explosive laugh at the lady's description of a child's book. Did I hear things or did she really say... That word. Rhymes with hanky. (laughs) Yes,
1: yes, she did. Uh, Angie uh, writes, Angie Lewis, uh, absolutely loving hearing you too. i I've only just got round to listening to the Graham Norton interview. I'd avoided it as I thought it was just going to be a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of interview with radio DJs and talk about his latest autobiography. How wrong I was. It was a great interview. I'm
2: so intrigued by the book
1: that I'm going to download a sample this evening on my Kindle.
2: And you never know who's going to get in touch with us here at Books of the Year, but we have had a nice email from Mr Wu Hongbo, Oh yeah Under Secretary General for Economic and Social Affairs wow. At the United Nations Compensation Fund Unit. Oh, part. the Compensation Fund Unit. This is officially informing you that the United Nations Compensation Commission and World Bank Group have authorised me to contact you based on your compensation account. After an extensive closed door meeting between the board of directors, we have agreed to compensate you with the sum of 1,500,000 oh, US dollars. Yes.
1: Well, we have had one offer, haven't we? Dr. Goodluck got in touch for 1.3 million euros. So, but, if you know.
2: you, yeah, that's right. If you want to receive your payment, Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what you do. You need to give us your full name, your home mobile address, da, 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 age occupation, scanned copy of your identification. All your banking details, yeah? Anyway...
1: $1.5 know. million dollars. could be ours. I mean, I'd, start of, I'd I'd lost patience with Dr. Goodluck. He didn't get back in contact yeah. with his 1.3 well,
2: million euros. Well, when we euros. get that, Mr. Wu Hongbo... Yes. Thank you for the money. We are going to... If you subscribe to this podcast now, we will split it between all of us.
1: Everyone gets some
2: money. Thanks to Dr. Wu Hongbo. And while we're contemplating that, here comes Anthony Horowitz and Marcus Zusak. So here we are on another Books of the Year podcast. Anthony Horowitz has written The Sentence is Death. Marcus Zusak has written Bridge of Clay. Hello, Marcus.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome
2: to the UK, Anthony. You live here, but you're always welcome. <laughs>
3: Five minutes away, but
4: thanks anyway,
2: Simon. Uh, Matt, do you want to describe yes. the covers? And I'm going to ask Anthony and Marcus to to read from uh, their books uh, in just a moment. So take Okay,
1: it so let's start with uh, Marcus's book, which is a very, very simple but very classy cover. So we've got Bridge of Clay written, dominating that, that front page, written in black in almost paint, thick paint strokes. And then you've got a, a brownish, goldish, uh, River passing uh, down the front of the page with Marcus's name picked out in black at the bottom. And Anthony's is, well, red is the dominant colour here. And we've got this, now the bridge here that uh, you, when you read the book, you'll know that it's called Suicide Bridge, which is the actual bridge. What's, it,
4: what's the actual it's in, bridge? It's over Highgate Road, isn't it? Yes. It's up in Highgate.
1: Highgate, exactly. And uh, the sentence is death is the in yellow with Anthony's name in blue at the bottom.
2: What a great title that is! There's an enormous joy in coming up with a great title. Curiously, the title of the book was originally another word for murder.
4: The first book is called "The Word Is Murder." Then another word for murder, and the third book was "The Sentence Is Death," which I foolishly mentioned to the publishers, and they liked it so much they insisted on me pulling it forward, yeah. which which incidentally meant changing the plot quite considerably. But still, there you are. Anyway, that's the prevails of the writer. Yes. <laughs>
2: um, Marcus, do you want to uh, maybe introduce us to? your boys here, and then read a bit from the book for us. Just sort of introduce a bit to the world of Bridge of Clay before, sure. we, before we go any further.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, we come in with five boys who are just living on their own. They're the oldest brother's Matthew, who's telling the story. Then there's Rory, Henry, Clay and Tommy, and uh, and they just live in this ramshackle house. Their mother's dead, their father has fled, and uh, and so they're just living in a world of their own rules, and it's uh, only when their dad comes back that clay decides he's going to go off to this place and and build a bridge with him on this country property because it just needs to be done so um so yeah they're the they're the boys and they've got these five animals as well so it's just rough they've got they even own a mule and uh which cuz they live in a racing quarter in the city and uh and so yeah i just wanted it to be a world that really where they just kind of did whatever they want and lived by their own sort of code okay would you like to um Uh, Read us a little bit. Sure. I might read a bit from the middle where you do actually see the family as they once were, if that works for you guys. If it works for you, Marcus, it's your book. You can read whatever you like. No worries. Let's see. In those days too, I remind myself our parents were something else. Sure, they fought sometimes, they argued. There was the odd suburban Thunderbolt, but they were mostly those people who'd found each other. They were golden and bright-lit and funny Often they seemed in cahoots somehow, like jailbirds who wouldn't leave. They loved us. They liked us. And that was a pretty good trick. After all, take five boys, put them in one small house and see what it looks and sounds like. It's a porridge of mess and fighting. I remember things like mealtimes and how sometimes it got too much. The forks dropping, the knives pointing and all those boys' mouths eating. They'd be arguing, elbowing, food all over the floor... How did that piece of cereal end up there, on the wall? Until a night came when Rory sealed it. He spilt half his soup down his shirt. Our mother didn't panic. She stood, cleaned up, and he would eat the rest of it, shirtless. And our father got the idea. We were all still celebrating when he said it. Henry and I nearly choked. Sorry? You didn't hear me? Ah, oh, shit, said Henry. Should I make you take your pants off too? For a whole summer, we ate like that, our T-shirts heaped near the toaster. To be fair, though, and to Michael Dunbar's credit, from the second time onwards, he took his own shirt off with us. Tommy, who was still in that beautiful phase when kids speak totally unfiltered, shouted, Hey, hey, Dad, what are you doing here in just your nipples? (laughs) The rest of us roared with laughter, especially Penny Dunbar, but Michael was up to the task. A slight flickering in one of his triceps... And what about your mum, you blokes? Should she go shirtless too? She never needed rescuing, but it was Clay who'd often be willing. No, he said, but she did it. Her bra was old and scruffy looking. It was faded, strapped to each breast. She ate and smiled regardless. She said, now don't go burning your chests. We knew what to get her for Christmas. I'm going to
2: read the book again, and I'm going to read it with that voice in my yeah. head because that's that's the voice that you
3: have to have. Even all those mistakes. It's <laughs> the one, so, one, so one thing, editing this goddamn book, is that I, I think I've gone blind. So I think it's uh, it's finally tipped me over to needing glasses. Do you, you, you say you were one of four? Yeah. Is there, is there anything of
2: your rumbustuous childhood
3: in there? In... Just the general chaos of, you know, fighting and... Uh, just everyone in the kitchen at the same time. I think I've carried that my whole life of just and loving that. So I've always had the idea, especially to be a writer, that you've got to have a bit of chaos in your life. And that's why I like working at home too for the majority of the time, except when I really need to get away and get total peace to actually get something done. But chaos is good, I think. Uh,
2: we'll hear more about the Dumbo boys in just a moment um Anthony, which is it difficult to choose a passage? do you always go for the for the opening or do you go for a middle section is it when 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 you go back and look at it, you're thinking oh I could read that one. It depends who I'm reading it for. I tend to actually like Marcus tend
4: to read very much of my own work publicly i, I find it quite i you 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 sort of at the beginning of this meeting you said mm. you weren't entirely happy about reading uh so I don't for example read a book uh festivals and things like that because. That's what the book is there for, and I'm not that great. Rory Kinnear does the audio books for these, and I'm certainly not as good as him. Uh, in answer, though, to your question, I just choose a section that sort of gives an idea of what the whole book is about, so not just a murder section or an action section, but a bit that sort of tries to describe the book. Okay. Um... And this section, which I'm about to read, comes from the second chapter, where okay. I should explain that in this book, a detective called Daniel Hawthorne investigates murders and has hired a writer to write about him they'll split the profits 50-50 and what makes the book I suppose unusual in the world of whodunits and murder mystery is that the writer he hires is me so I am the, the, the first person voice you hear in this book is me and it starts on the set of Foyle's War where I've been filming uh, and um, he drives in in a taxi with the music blaring and destroys the set and everything and uh, this is what happens afterwards okay. I left Hawthorne in my office actually a Winnebago trailer parked halfway up a side street while I went to get us both coffee from the catering truck when I returned, he was sitting at my desk, leaving through the latest draft of the Eternity Ring, which rather annoyed me because I certainly hadn't invited him to read my work. At least he wasn't smoking. These days I hardly know anyone who smokes, but Hawthorne was still getting through about a packet a day, which is why we usually met outside coffee shops sitting in the street. I wasn't expecting you, I said as I climbed back inside. You don't seem too pleased. Well, as a matter of fact, I'm quite busy, although you probably didn't notice when you drove straight into the middle of the set. I want you to see you. He waited until I had sat down opposite him. How's the book going? I've finished it. I still don't like the title. I'm still not giving you any choice. All right, all right. He looked up at me as if I had somehow and for no good reason offended him. He had mud-brown eyes, but it was remarkable how they still managed to appear so clear, so completely innocent. I can see you're in a bad mood today, but you know it's not my fault you overslept. Who told you I'd overslept, I asked, falling into the obvious trap, and you still haven't found your phone? Hawthorne? You didn't lose it in the street, he went on. I think you'll find it somewhere in your flat. Now, I'll give you a word of advice. If Michael Kitchen doesn't like your script, maybe you should think about hiring another actor. <laughs> Don't take it out on me. Yeah.
2: Uh, I, what I love about this, this, this book is absolutely fabulous. We, we spoke uh, before about, about the first but when you introduce us to Daniel Hawthorne, who's a tough guy to like, very. But I just want to ask you about the Anthony Horowitz who's in this book. Not tough to like. Not tough to like. But also, he's a version of you, isn't he? He
4: isn't. He is sort of me, actually. I mean, the thing about it is, when I pitched this idea to the publishers, trying to find a way to do Murder Mystery in a different sort of way, they got a bit nervous. You know, is it going to be egotistical? Is it going to be how great I am? Is it going to be embarrassing? What is it going to be? What it is, it's me as a writer. So it is me. I did work on Foyle's War, I did have a Winnebago trailer. And it is my life, but it's not my personal life. So it's not sort of what I think and feel. It's a little bit like in a Sherlock Holmes novel. How much do you really know about Watson? Not that much. Uh, the book is about
2: Sherlock Holmes. My book is about Hawthorne. I guess I guess what, what led me down that thought is the fact that the Anthony Horowitz, who is the author of this book, knows and understands everything. And the Anthony Horowitz in your book obviously does not. In fact, he appears to know a whole lot less He's Uh, an idiot, let's be honest. (laughs) Uh, uh, An Hawthorne, do you know what I mean? So therefore, we have a kind of an odd relationship with you. But that's the fun of it, because
4: in fact, there is no book if Hawthorne doesn't solve the murder. And I'm always following him around town in terror that I won't actually have a book to, to publish. But it's easy enough to imagine myself into the book. And just, you know, when a writer writes a book, you either stand on the mountain and see all the valley and the plains and all the way down to the river or whatever, or you're inside the valley and you see only what's around you. It's almost a difference between the eye form of writing and the he form of writing Uh, and that's all I've done I've imagined myself into the book my life remains intact but it's a perspective
2: that changes and it feels like the most personal book these two books feel like the most personal of yours because it feels as though you are speaking directly to us well I am in a way I mean the whole book began with the idea of writing a book about writing that's what
4: I've always wanted to do I, I love William Goldman Adventures in the Screen Trade and Stephen King on writing I've always wanted to write a book like that but I'm not good enough to do it or clever enough really so this is my way of doing it it's a whodunit it's a murder mystery it's clues it's it's all that stuff
2: but inside it is also a dialogue about what it is like to be writing a book like this okay so uh, just before matt comes in just to explain what the what the where are we what is the crime uh, where are we at the beginning of the sentence's death?
4: We're in London. It's five years ago. Our, a divorce lawyer called Richard Price, who de- deals in very, very high-end divorce cases, multi-millions of pounds are changing hands, is found bludgeoned to death in his Hampstead our house. He's been killed with a bottle of wine, even though he was a teetotaler, and a four-figure numeral is is painted on the wall uh behind him, and it's uh what did that mean and therefore uh a detective is called in an outside consultant to uh crack the case that's hawthorne, and he pulls in me okay
1: it wow. is it is excellent and and here's the joy of these kind of books is that as you're reading inevitably your your mind is going to be racing as to oh right, this is whats this is the reason why this is my theory, and what I love here is you 've already spoken about how you know you and Hawthorne are very much like the Holmes and Watson and I, as I was reading the book, I realized that actually i 've got a huge amount of sympathy for Watson because. Inevitably, when you read it and when you watch the TV series, Watson tends to get the rough end of the stick. In other words, Watson will be the one that gets attacked. Watson will be the one who will come up with a theory that you as a reader go, yeah, yeah, no, that makes total sense. And then... Holmes turns it on its head and says, "No, it's absolute rot." And you, as a reader, go, "Yeah, of course it's rot. Yes, I know. I knew that from the start." And and you and your sympathy ebbs away from Watson. What I loved is that you were able to 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 bring that to life and and have me on your side, but at the same time thinking, "Oh no, 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 he's got it completely wrong." It's that sort of those two things going on at the same time.
4: was well, nice of you to say so, Matt. Thank you very much. I mean, you know, it is true that a lot of bad things happen to me in this book and in the one before it. I always seem to end up in hospital by the end of it. I don't quite. <laughs> know why. Uh, but yes, I mean, it was Doyle's genius to create the sidekick. I mean, he created that whole template of the, the master detective with the sort of less masterful, but not stupid sidekick. Watson is not stupid. He's very bright. But nonetheless, he does tend to get things wrong. And I think that in some respects, there is no, no worse position to be in literature than the sidekick. I mean, it's sort of on the side of the thing. It's not the actual, you know, it's not the book isn't about you. It's about somebody completely different. And yet, again, the genius of Doyle, we would not like Holmes if it were not for Watson. I hope that that's what I'm trying to do in this book too. As the series continues, I hope there'll be 10 or 11 of them, and I begin to try and explore what has made Hawthorne such a damaged individual. Why is he so unpleasant? Why is he so, you know, his attitudes? Why are so many of his attitudes so questionable? And I almost become a detective in the series of the books, and hopefully we'll get to like him more and more as the series continues. So Hawthorne is actually part of the puzzle? He, he becomes so. I mean, in this book, there are some little sort of, you know, mysteries are, are beginning to get solved. He has a, 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 a neighbour in particular who is helping him in a strange way that is revealed for the first time. We know he has a brother-in-law. We know he has an ex-wife. We know he has some past connected to Yorkshire. So bits of his past are beginning to appear sort of piece by piece. And the pleasure of the book will be, that, or the pleasure of the series will be, that I can write 10, 11 of these books, which each of which will be a separate murder mystery. But inside that, there'll be an overall arc as I begin myself to turn detective and investigate Hawthorne. You've got them all planned, haven't you? I've got the ending planned, and I've got the next two. Full Stop is the third one,
2: and then The Knives Are Out, which is a book about critics.
0: <laughs>
2: Be nice about my book. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Can I... Um, I don't want to give anything... I don't want to sort of fast-forward too much into the book, but I know how you tackle your research... Anyone who follows you on Twitter knows that you turn up all over the world, and you say, "Where am I now?" And you're thinking, "Oh, you're doing some amazing research for uh, for one of your books, maybe an Alex Rider book or a Bond book or something." But can I ask you about caving? I did go caving for this. Yes, book. I was can just I, I was just going to ask you because it's it's kind of a there's a crucial sequence which we relive a number of times about what happened uh, in the caves, and it was a, a tragic moment. But I was thinking that's a, I've always thought that's a very dangerous place. Uh, to be a very dangerous sport. but what? So what well, I,
4: I am really proud of myself. I do try to get things right, and, and I do take my research to extremes. And this time, I went up to Yorkshire and went caving for the first time in my life. Age 63, I'm suddenly finding myself, you know, several metres underground, crawling through tiny little tunnels. And here's the funny thing. I thought I'd be terrified. I'd hate it. I'm quite claustrophobic. Even sitting in this studio, I'm taking deep breaths, you may have noticed. Uh, but the funny thing was that when I went caving, I absolutely loved it. I found the whole world fascinating. And a guy called Chris Jackson showed me uh, how to do it and, and helped lower me down on a rope and all the rest of it. And, and, and therefore, I think the descriptions in the book really come to life. I don't think I could have... I didn't do it just for fun, although it was fun. I did it because I didn't think I could write convincingly about the experience
2: of potholing or caving without doing it, so I did. I think that's why they're so terrifying. I think that when when people imagine themselves into the sequences that you've written, I think that's why. Well, it was really good fun because in the sequence that I've written, and it's not giving anything away, the the the, the
4: cavers are trapped and the water is rising and there's floods all around them and they, and and one of them is stuck. And Chris took me down to the spot. I described what I wanted. and He took me to where it might have happened, and then he sort of wedges me into the hole and starts shouting at me. And you know, I can't help you, mate. I can't help you. You're gonna die. You're, you're gonna die. And it was it was. It's very easy to imagine uh, yeah. what it would be like. That. Did, did you ask him to do that? So you asked You said, put me... No, I was, I was a little bit surprised when it with you, but nonetheless, <laughs> it did help. I mean, I was uh, it's testament to your writing. I was terrified reading that. It's... And the last thing I want to do now is go pothole. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'm sorry to hear that because i recommend it. In fact, I want to go back next year and do another cave just for the fun of it.
2: I really enjoyed it. Uh, we're going to do more with Anthony Horowitz and Mark Zuzak after this. Anthony Horowitz's book is *The Sentence's Death*. Marcus Zusak's book is *Bridge of Clay*. Uh, Marcus, were you listening to Anthony there talking um, about potholing and going down caves and thinking, actually, I need to go and experience something? Mm. It's is, I mean, you've talked about liking writing at the kitchen table and all that, yeah. reading really, at the kitchen table. Do you ever take yourself anywhere else, thinking, "No, I've got to, I, I need to be somewhere. I need to feel this. I need to smell it before I write it down."
3: But before I even answer that, I just want to say I loved the idea that. Anthony was was talking about with um, well two things. Well, firstly, you saying about how you've written yourself into these books and then just let yourself get beaten up and end in hospital. It's kind <laughs> of how you feel at the end of every book, anyway. And uh, and also your use of the word rot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I just landed in. Uh, you know, just got to England. I thought that's what I've been missing all these years. So uh, uh, I've loved it. But um, it's just funny thinking about research in that way and or getting in the mood for things to write and so on you know I, I had to research bridge building I had to research uh, you know Michelangelo works and things like that but one of the other big elements of this book was horse racing and uh, so of course Michelangelo bridge building the first thing I did was go to the track <laughs> and uh, and so um, I had some really good times researching. That and gambling and uh, and then just going back through um, whole just the history of horse racing in australia and and finding out you know there are all these great legends and myths and well not even myths, but just things like when our great horse Farlap died, the Prime Minister of Australia came down the courthouse steps, he just won a high court decision, and um, the horse being farlap and they they said to him, well." you know, what do you think about winning this high court decision? And he said, typically, in a typically Australian way, he said, well, what good is winning a high court decision when Farlap is dead? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I just, you know, those little stories, they start to just, they add up and add up and add up until you have a point where, right, now I want to write about that.
2: People who are fans of the book Thief have waited a very, very long time uh, f- for this book your publishers have been just going crazy waiting for a new Marcus Zuzak book why has this book taken so long i know you've been researching it and thinking about it
3: and trying to write it for ages tell us how long tell us the stats well, it's funny because i i i'm 43 now and i had the the idea when i was 19 or 20 and i i always thought this is this is my best idea this has always been my best idea a boy and his name's clay And the idea that clay can be moulded into anything, but it needs fire to set it and a bridge that would be made of stone or wood or anything, any material, but it's made of him. Everything in him is what goes into this bridge. And, uh, and the idea that he could walk along top of the water maybe at the end while the sun's coming up and that's the fire to set it, of course, which doesn't happen at the end. You always go left or right of where you think you're going to end up. And, uh, And I think I was just, at the start, The Book Thief did, I mean, I thought that book would sink without a trace. Honestly, I I mean, I imagine someone trying to recommend it to their friends, you know, and the friend says, well, what's it about? And you say, well, it's set in Nazi Germany. It's narrated by death. Nearly everyone dies and it's 580 pages long. You'll love it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I just thought, they'll start writing straight away, you know, and, um, but then you know, so I started writing the book and I, I, it was just never quite there. And I mean, you know, and and I know all of you are writers and you, you know what it's like that you're searching for something and you're going, that's not it. That's not it. And then you go again, that's not it. So it took me a while to find my feet with it. Um, and actually what I was trying to do. And that took a while. And then I just, I wrote too obsessively. I was, I was literally like, I wrote the first page thousands of times and, uh, and so and that was that that went on for years and I'd write more I'd go in and I'd write so it's it's written in eight parts and I'd write part 3 but then I'd always end up back at the beginning I'd write bits of part 4 and I'd end up back at the beginning and uh and so I was just treading over things for a long time until um until I'd gotten to a point where I'd worked so hard that I I'd I'd kind of run my race you know, about four or five years in and then not knowing that it would be another six or seven years till I actually finished it. But um, I don't regret that now because, you know, you get some of your best breakthroughs in this case towards the latter, you know, quarter of writing the book. And so I think a book, I always think a book is as long as its ideas and takes as long as its ideas. And that was just one of those books for me. And, you know, I, I don't have any regrets actually.
1: I've got to say this is beautifully written and i I adored reading this book marcus um i want to ask you about the bridge. Because, as I was reading, there is a great sequence where, when Clay has just turned up to, um, uh, to meet his father and they're, they're discussing this bridge that they're going to build. And it reminded me, um, in a sort of tangential way, there was a movie a few years ago called Margin Call, uh, which is about this financial crash. But there's a great speech within it by um, Stanley Tucci's character where he talks about how in a previous life he'd been a structural engineer and he'd built a bridge. And he was able to give you... St- stats on exactly how much money had been saved by people being able to cross this bridge instead of having to go round the lake, of uh, how many years had been saved for those people who'd used that bridge. And it just struck me as I was reading your book that it's interesting that you should choose a bridge that Clay is building, as opposed to, say, a road, as opposed to, say, a house or any other kind of structure. Was there any thinking to that, or, or did that just come organic?
3: Often, it's a little bit like people would say to me with the book, Thief, why was it a girl? Uh, so I never second-guessed that. It was always a girl. In this case, it was always a bridge. And uh, and I think maybe it was from always... There's something about bridges. There is something, uh, you know, in a, in a rational, um, practical sort of way, in that way that you were talking about, mm. of the, the money saved, uh, in that sense of being able to just go straight over as opposed to around. And um, But I think I always loved... Uh, when I, I saw a photo once of Pont de garde and uh you know the great Roman aqueduct and, and just the legend of that 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 the devil built it and all and so i love I loved not only bridges but stories of bridges and i always lo- and I always loved the idea of arches and and that particular bridge and aqueduct um La Pont de garde doesn 't have any mortar it 's all just fitted perfectly and uh, and so yeah, I never second-guessed that it was a bridge. It was a bridge from the very first moment. And the, you second-guess so many other things that when there's something that feels naturally inbuilt in the book that existed in the book before there was a book, you don't ask questions
2: about it. Can I just ask Anthony about what Marcus said there? Do you, does that ring true with you, the fact that things just are? They just feel as though it, it was always a bridge. I mean, obviously, you've got a bridge actually on the front of, uh, of uh, as it happens yes. your book. So... Um, As you construct a story, are things just, you know, Hawthorne just is the way he is and was always that way?
4: Yes, I completely sort of empathised with what Marcus was just saying there, that somehow I think when you begin a book, particularly a book as sort of what's the word, as monumental as Bridge of Clay, I think you have a sort of an inner certainty of what the book is going to be, that some things, some things will change, of course, and it's certainly in a, in a murder mystery, which is a a lighter form of fiction in a way, you know, you are shifting clues and characters and events to sort of, you know, to, to make the mystery work. But I think if you're writing any book, you begin with a truth that is the scaffolding, the structure, the, the heart of the book, and that is, it's
2: instinctive, it's intuitive, and it doesn't change. What's the... Um, what you had with this book, presumably Marcus, is a whole bunch of expectation, which you wouldn't have had for the book thief. By your own admission, you said mm-hmm. you thought it was going to mm. uh, bomb. Sixteen million copies later, or whatever the latest figure is, you know that that's not true. Did you feel any of that? Was that one of the reasons why this took so long?
3: I think yes and no. More more so than I thought at first. You just think, no, nah, that doesn't. It's not really bothering me. But then you and because you do have to let go. Like, what I, I think, what what I love when you're writing a book is that you're trying to look after the reader a lot at when you first write, when you first start. And it'll be interesting what you think about this too. That you're looking after them, you're trying to keep them interested, and trying to do everything. And there's a point where you, you cross a line, and then you say, right, now you've got to come with me. And uh, and then suddenly, what you're doing then is you're writing for the characters in the book. And uh, and I felt very much that way. Particularly through, um, you know, in the late, what allowed me to get it written was when I was writing for that boy, for that family, and even for some of the minor characters like Carrie, Clay's best friend, and uh, the apprentice jockey. I was writing for them, and uh, and that's kind of what got me through. Yes, I don't think I am quite the same as you but then I think our books are
4: very very different and couldn't be more different. I'm writing f- not for the characters, although I'm writing for one of them because that character is me uh so so it, that makes it different for a start. I think I'm always writing for my readers, and I think that I put narrative and construction and and surprise and adventure even before slightly before character um you know Hawthorne is an interesting character whom I'm unpeeling book by book but he doesn't tell me what he does tell me what to do in the book but actually in real life I'm telling
2: him. Mm. Uh, Marcus um, we're, we're delighted Bridge of Clay is, uh, is, is, is here at last and I hope you enjoy your time in the UK I just wondered the way you're talking about the Dunbar family whether actually you're still with them <laughs> and actually you will I mean you know maybe in 20 years time we'll come back and do this again but you know actually you you would part of you would quite like to go back and do some more.
3: It's interesting. This book, I remember my publisher at home saying to me when it was finally finished, she said, you must feel great. And I wasn't that day. I was feeling a bit on the miserable side because I think you spend so much time working on something that you love and has been hard at times. And then, you know, by the end, you're sick of the sight of them. But then when it's finally done, you wonder how you're going to live without them. And, uh, and that's definitely how I felt. And uh, and this is the sort of book that I, I sort of realised that there are a lot of characters in this book and some of them could have had novels of their own. And And it was funny how this book too, Penny Dunbar, when she comes to Australia, she carries two books with her and it's the, the Iliad and the Odyssey and this book might have been The War and maybe there's one book about coming home. So okay. um, maybe, but not in the way that, not necessarily even Clay's story, but there's definitely still something. There might still be some unfinished business. Anthony, what do we uh, what do we get from, from you next? Next, well, I'm at the moment writing a new Alex Ryder novel,
4: um, Nightshade, which is going to be out in 2019. No, 2020. Uh,
2: and then as soon as I finish that, it's full stop number three of Hawthorne. And are there any ideas that you had when you were 19 which have been, l- since since like you Marcus, mentioned it. been bubbling away, thinking, I am going to get to that? Since you mentioned it, and it was interesting listening to Marcus talk about this, Uh,
4: Magpie Murders, uh, a book I published about two years ago, I thought that idea up something like 17 years before I wrote it. And I can even prove it because if you watch Midsummer Murders, a TV show back in about 1999 or something, one of the characters is reading Magpie Murders, my book soon to be. Uh, And it took me 15 or 16 years to get the courage and the sort of sense that this is the right moment to start writing it. But the difference between you and me, Marcus, is that when I did start writing it, 15 months later, 15
2: months later, I had the book. Could could you write a book for me (laughs)
3: this
4: next
2: year or two? That's a bad idea. Anything. anything. Uh, Anthony's book is The Sentence's Death. Marcus's book is Bridge of Clay, gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, you, Simon. It's been great. A fascinating writer's masterclass, I think, with Anthony Horowitz and Marcus Zuzak. You can imagine, your Anthony's so prolific, he's extraordinary. There's yeah. Marcus, who's been thinking about that book for 20 years. Come on, Marcus!
1: <laughs> Writing the first page thousands of times, imagine that.
2: Don't leave us hanging around. Oh, have we got time to mention the, the reviews? Oh, we have! You? Well, we've got time to mention the five-star ones, which are the only ones we're interested in. Plastic taff, great to listen to whilst vigorously sanding down my skirting boards. <laughs> Is that a euphemism?
1: Yes. Is it? No, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure that's what he's doing.
2: Do you want to do the one at the top?
1: Uh, Right, this is, uh, yes, from... Deb loves you. Uh, it's, uh, I'm so pleased to have found this podcast. I used to love Simon Mayo when he did Book Club on Radio 2. Oh, is that right? Ra- no, no, Radio 5. 5. I, did, I yes. did a little bit on yeah, as Yeah, well. you did as well I yeah. uh, have always missed him, as didn't find it the same on Radio 2. Thanks, oh, thanks very much. A lot. Yeah, uh, so brilliant to hear this. Also, I'm already a Guardian subscriber. So glad they sponsor you. I will buy this book now. Just felt too sad when I looked at the reviews, but hearing Heather has changed my mind. It sounds a must. This, of course, about the Tattooist of Auschwitz.
2: Uh Thank you for getting in touch thank you for leaving five star reviews Five stars? We're not interested you've got a th- if you've got a three star review back off Don't we're not care. interested. Yeah. Uh, on the next podcast we'll be talking to some of the QI elves who've done their book of the year so there'll be a book of the year on books of the year Imagine that booking. Yeah. And explorer Levinson Wood talking about his book on Arabia all to come through the magic of this podcast Thank you Matt. Thank you Simon